Good morning. Boy, how awesome is it to come together as a church family? Uh, I love it. You guys are getting to know my family. You saw, saw my, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting to know everybody slowly and working on it. Um, but uh, uh, I, I have not spent time with a person here yet that I have not just loved deeply. So uh, just uh, really love you guys. You guys get to see my, see Nicholas's little, his haircut matches his personality. See that? That was, that was fun. We uh, went down to the barber yesterday, and that's what he asked for. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, we're going to go into Luke chapter 5. So we're going to be in Luke 5, and, and uh, while you're turning there, um, I just, I also noticed this morning, the sun, the long days, how many of us are feeling like we're getting so much more done now? Yeah, the sun, and it makes us happy, right? All right, Luke 5, starting in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And he saw their faith, and he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which one is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. They glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Our merciful God, we thank you for giving us this beautiful sunny Sunday uh, to, to gather as a worshiping community. We surrender our hearts to you that we may be made clean by the washing of your word. Lord, help us to see and understand and to hear your voice. Cause us to receive the scriptures with holy submission and awe this morning. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill this place that he would inhabit our hearts as we open up your word, as we partake in that which gives us knowledge of who you are. We give this time over to you and to your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. When I was in college, my dad, who's normally known for making really good decisions, co-signed for me to buy a car. I paid my bills. Um, a couple years later, I get a birthday card in the mail from Dad. It was just this unremarkable, unmemorable, unassuming 
card, but on the inside of the card was something truly spectacular. It, it wasn't cash. It wasn't a nice rhyme or poem. I think the, the print just said happy birthday or something like that. But it was simply the handwritten words, paid in full, dad. Now, to pay off a small loan that I was responsible for, it was an astoundingly nice thing to do. It was a true blessing. But when we learn who God is, and we learn the gravity of even one small sin, the weight, the debt of sin that we owe, we realize that we could not ever pay the price for even a small sin against God. And yet we sin over and over and over. And so how do those words sound coming from God? Paid in full, Dad. There's a line in an old hymn that goes, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. Romans 4, 7 to 8 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today we're going to see a completely helpless, paralyzed man. We're going to see Jesus deal with him uh, in an even bigger problem than his paralysis. We're going to see Jesus deal with his sin. Let's start in verse 17. Luke 5, 17. One of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. We don't have a specific time or place given here. Mark is a little bit more specific. So uh, in a spirit of redundancy here, uh, let's go ahead and go to Mark chapter 2. Let's read Mark's account of this event. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum uh, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down a bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. According to Mark, he's at home in Capernaum. Where was home to him? 
we aren't told. But I think there's a high chance he's back staying with Simon and his wife. And so then this possibility exists that he's, this is all taking place in Simon's house. Um, it, in all likelihood, it's in a house. The phrase, one of those days, puts it in the context of the time period that we saw in chapter 4. Jesus had demonstrated his authority over spiritual demons by casting out the demon of a, of a demonized man. He demonstrated authority over illness by healing Simon's mother-in-law's fever and some other illnesses. And then he continued, he said that he must preach the good news all over in other towns. And then beginning in chapter 5 where he demonstrates his authority over nature when Simon and his crews caught all of the fish and almost sunk their boats with it. And then Last week we saw that he had authority over what is and isn't clean when he touched and healed the leper. Today's text appears in the same context. In light of his authority, next week we're going to see him call Levi and continue his teaching as his ministry begins to accelerate in the following weeks. This morning we're going to highlight the capstone of Christ's authority on earth, which is the power to forgive sin. There are two important words that I want us to remember. You don't have to remember the Greek. The Greek is dunamos and exosion. Uh, remember the English words, power and authority. Power and authority. The reason those words are important is because we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke that Luke is concerned with demonstrating that we can be certain of the power and authority of Jesus. His power and authority are at the center of what he's trying to approve. But before we look at Jesus, I think it's important that we consider his audience. And I think this is going to be important for us this morning. Verse 17 says that it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then in verse 20, uh, he names the scribes and Pharisees. Now, just the scribes were more than just copyists. They were the ones who would document everything. They'd write down the law. They'd jot things down. Uh, the term teachers of the law uh, here is pretty clearly being used interchangeably with the scribes because they would be the educated ones that would teach anyway. So... What's important about that is that the whole crowd mentioned was likely part of the party of the Pharisees. So there were probably all Pharisees in there. Now, give a little history there. The Maccabean Revolt was about a century and a half earlier, before all this took place. And there formed four basic worldviews coming out of that, or parties, among the Jews. Kind of like we have evangelicals and mainstream denominations. There's some variations that are kind of quickly changing right now between that. Um, they had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. I'm going to define those real quick for you. The Essenes were more like the ascetic Jews. They would gravitate towards like monastic practice. Uh, generally, they kept to places in the wilderness like, like En Gedi, uh, they were highly spiritual and maybe were influenced by some Eastern thought, uh, but they did hold in common with the Pharisees a very high view of the providence or the sovereignty of God. The Zealots uh, were the ones whose focus was on armed resistance against the Romans. Uh, they looked back fondly on the days of the Maccabeans and were ready to 
overthrow Rome in the name of Israel. They saw Israel as occupied territory uh, by the Romans and they wanted their independence. And that was kind of the center of their religious uh, beliefs or what was most important to them. The Sadducees, on the other hand, saw the advantages of being governed by the Romans. They were part of the aristocratic group that often had uh, significant wealth. And from that group came the priests who controlled the temple. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body or any kind of real personal afterlife. And then the Pharisees, who we're looking at today, they were kind of the religious conservatives. They had a very high view of God's sovereignty. They had a high view of the Jewish scriptures, which you know is the Old Testament today. They uh, had a high view of maintaining holiness by avoiding as much contact with the heathens or people that were like them as possible. They also believed in immortality, uh, where the righteous would pass into another body and the wicked would face eternal torment. Uh, they defended with strict obedience the law or the laws of Moses. Uh, they're known in the New Testament for being the ones who made sure that people knew they were. They, they made sure to demonstrate their external righteousness as much as possible. They wanted people to know, hey, look at, I am a Pharisee, I follow the law, I'm a good guy. The, the crowd in our passage today seems to be composed entirely of Pharisees, particularly since the Pharisees tended to be a pretty exclusive community. In fact, the, the friends of this, uh, this paralyzed guy, they could have been Pharisees too. We don't know. Um, but word of Jesus is spreading very quickly. If you remember last week, we saw that the leper was told to keep quiet until he got verified by the priest, but he couldn't keep his mouth shut, uh, to the point that Jesus couldn't escape the masses. And, and, and here they are just coming from all over. And in this case, it's the Pharisees that want to see what's up with Jesus. And the question that we all might be asking this morning is, did the Pharisees here have a sincere interest in Jesus? And the correct answer is, I don't know. But it would seem that they very well may have, uh, at least at this time, and <clears throat> we're going to see why towards the end of the passage. Verse 17, Luke 5, 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, do you remember that? Does anybody remember learning about the hypostatic union. Remember that uh, around Christmas time? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat it because it's hard. Uh, but it just means that in the incarnation, God the Son, Jesus, was 100% human and 100% God simultaneously. That's the hypostatic union. In fact, there was a Christian rock band by the name of Hypostatic Union a while back. Um, and so what that means is in his human limitations, he had to rely on the Father and the Holy Spirit. So here it says he has the power of Yahweh to heal the sick. And so we see the interaction of the Trinity taking place right there, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We introduced Jesus... We introduced the Pharisees. Now I want to take a look at the paralyzed guy and his friends. 
It says in verse 18, Luke 5, 18, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Now, aside from Jesus, my favorite actors in this story are the friends. Because they, they were true friends. You ever felt like you never know who your true friends are until there's a crisis? You ever feel that way? Like, we don't know how this guy became paralyzed. It's not, in my mind, likely that he, became, he was paralyzed from birth because what social environments would he have been in to make friends? Society was such that I doubt that that would be a thing, although they certainly could have been friends of his family and his parents and stuff like that. So he could have been paralyzed from birth. We don't know. But it also, maybe it was, you know, some sort of accident or illness. Maybe it was his own fault. We don't know. We have people today, I know a few who do freestyle motocross. You ever, you ever heard about freestyle motocross? And, you know, we feel bad when they get hurt jumping 80 feet in the air and doing tricks like front flips and back flips and then getting off of the motorcycle and getting back on the motorcycle before they land it. And, and, but, and then when they get hurt, I mean, who do you blame for that, right? But we still feel bad. And if, and if you're their friend, you want to help them, right? So could have been something like that. Maybe he could have been the victim of a crime. We, we see a story like that, a parable that Jesus told of a guy that was beaten. Maybe he was the victim of a crime that paralyzed him. Maybe he was in an industrial accident. Maybe he did everything he could to be safe. He wore his hard hat. He wore his safety glasses. He wore the orange vest. He followed all the OSHA rules, right? It was just a freak accident. Didn't know OSHA was around in the first century, did you? They've been They've been at us for a while. No. Uh, but, you know, we don't know the circumstances of his paralysis. But, but it's good to kind of look at all the possibilities because all of us have fallen into those areas or have friends in those areas, right? So it's good to look at the possibilities. The one thing we do know about him, the one thing we knew, do know about him is his friends loved him. His friends loved him. God has blessed me with some really faithful friends, good friends that I don't deserve. Pastor Clint's one of those. He's walked with me through some, some serious, just some tough times and things like that. I have no doubt that he would be one of those four, you know, lowering me down to be touched by Jesus. And we all, we all, you know, or maybe just trying to get rid of me. I don't know. But... Uh, but no, I have no doubt he would do anything for me. We all need friends like a good Clint, right? We, we all need those good friends. So maybe as like an ancillary application, uh, identify those friends in your life and foster those relationships. Good friend is more priceless than all the gold in the world. And don't just look for those friends. Be that friend. So that's my rabbit trail for today. Uh, now, these, these friends uh, of this paralytic were worth more than all the gold in the world. They had heard about Jesus. They believed the reports. They drugged their friend. And their friend, this would have just been dead weight, right? They drugged their friend, who knows how far, to be touched by Jesus. Th those are... Those are true friends. But, but listen, they didn't stop there. They were persistent. They, there was an obstacle, right? Verse 19, Luke 5, 19. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down 
with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. They hit a roadblock. They couldn't do what they had come to do, what they had come to accomplish, but they were determined. They had to get their friend to Jesus because they believed what they heard. And we always act according to what we believe, right? They believed that Jesus could heal their friend and they believed that their friend was worth whatever effort it took to get him to Jesus. And we always act according to what we believe. So what did they do? Listen, Kent Hughes said this. He said, if you really love your neighbors, you will find a way to bring them to the love of Christ. At the time, there seemed to be a few ways that the roof would be built. There would probably be some parallel timbers. Uh, and then there are two probable coverings. One would be tiles that would be pretty heavy. Uh, that's, we're, we're told tiles here, but it could mean something a little more broad than that. The other would be uh, that sticks would be placed across those timbers. And then it would be padded with leaves and twigs and other like available organic material. And then it would be covered with about a foot of like earthen clay kind of stuff to make a roof that's about two feet thick. And in the spring, this roof would likely have a covering of grass. Our translation says tiles, but the word that's translated tiles could just mean potter's clay. So both are a possibility. I probably lean towards how the experts translated it, but either possibility does exist. But here's the thing. The, the construction of the roof isn't the story. It, it wouldn't make a difference to the meaning of the text if the roof was made of plywood and peanut butter. It, the roofs, regardless of construction, they'd be flat. They'd be where people would often spend time because the houses were relatively small compared to what we're used to today. So it was a big, it was a heavy, thick roof there, one way or the other. There would be some sort of stairwell uh, or roof access point. Either way, access to the roof wasn't the hard part. The hard part was getting through the roof. And that's the point. These friends went to great effort and risk to help their friend. Like, can you imagine just digging through some stranger's roof? Like, can you, like, imagine if I went over to, to Kevin's house over here, not that Kevin's a stranger, and I started to just take his roof apart to get in. Like, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be happy with me. Right? Put yourself in the scene. This, this little house is, is packed, little adobe house. It's packed inside and out with, with the Pharisees inside here. And, and, and debris starts to kind of fall from the ceiling, right? One Pharisee looks up and begins rubbing his eye. And then another one, and they all start rubbing their eyes. And they all look down. And then the, they look back up and the sunlight's coming through. And, and, and then this really limp, paralyzed dude starts coming down through the roof. Like, put yourself in the situation, right? Now, up to this point, keep in mind, the Pharisees are kind of introduced as like somewhat neutral moral agents. They're not, we're not told if they're, they have good or bad intentions. In other words, we're not told that they're going to turn on Jesus yet. So we need to read with that in mind. We haven't got to the part where they become a problem. In fact, here they seem to be pretty cool, right? 
listening to Jesus teach, they're considering his words, and we're not told how the men let their friend down. Uh, most of the time we imagine something a little bit like this, uh, if you can see that. He's kind of coming through the roof there, and there's got ropes hanging onto his, his bed. Or the next one here, this is maybe a little bit, yeah, see, there, it's coming down. That's probably more like it because the roof is low. It would have been a low roof. Um, so, and you see them kind of hanging on the ropes. And right there, we've got Jesus being lowered down and everybody kind of moving out of the way except Jesus that holds his hand. Kind of like it, you, you imagine a rock concert where somebody stage dives and everybody moves out of the way. That never goes well, right? Um, and so that's what it looks like here. And look at the size of Jesus' hand in the coloring book picture. That is unnaturally large. I don't know what happened there. So... Um, yeah, but, but I have a question about that scenario. Where did the paralyzed man's little MacGyver friends get rope? Did they take a little detour to Home Depot? Did they? Well, okay, so it's a fishing town. Fish, fish, there'd be rope, right? Uh, so maybe they gathered pieces of rope up and got them together or whatever and made it work. But the Bible doesn't mention rope, so we don't know if it was there. I wonder, though... I wonder if the Pharisees actually went up, look at them here, reaching up to help the guy down. I, I wonder if that happened. Because think about it. Here the Pharisees are. Maybe they really do have sincere questions. And suddenly, you know, the roof opens up, the paralyzed guy starts coming down, and they're like, okay, this is what we're doing now. And so they, they help him down, and they're going to say, what's Jesus going to do with this? We're interested, right? Three chapters later, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. Luke 8. If you go to Luke 8. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it and some fell on the rock. As it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. Now pay, pay careful attention to how he explains the second seed. Verse 13, Luke 8, 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. Now, I'm not going to ask if we know people like that in the church. That never goes well. So's discord, all that. But the right question to ask here is, am I one of those people? Meditate on that a little. It is entirely possible that Jesus perhaps had some of these Pharisees in mind when he told that parable because the Pharisees, at one point, at least many of them would turn on him. Back to Luke chapter 5, verse 20. It says, when they saw their friend, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I don't think he's just talking about the friends when he said he saw their faith. Because I think... The paralyzed man, paralyzed man and his friends, they talked. They probably all had faith, right? They all, all, all of them, all five of them, I think, 
Um, and, and the paralyzed man, though, here's the thing, is he could do nothing to express his faith, could he? The, the friends acted on their faith, but it seems Jesus turns his attention right to the paralytic who could do nothing but believe. It's a doctrine, I, I think uh, it points at least to a doctrine that we call sola fide, or justification by faith alone. That means that we're not saved by the works of the law or by any meritorious deeds, but by faith in Christ Jesus. The good things that we do are the outcome of that faith. And he observes the outcome of the friend's belief. And how does he answer? He turns to the paralyzed man and he says, man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Paid in full. Just like the leper of last week. Remember that in Luke 5, 13? Jesus stretches out his hand. He touches him saying, be clean. Be clean. We often see our faith as what we do and don't do. That's how we identify ourselves, right? We see becoming a Christian as a form of behavior modification. We, we understand the primary difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate person to be how they behave. And that's not biblical. Sin was present in the man who was void of almost all behavior. The difference isn't what I do. The difference is Christ in me. The difference is that I can sin in my sleep, but Jesus has forgiven me and given me inheritance and he loves me and he died for me. And the reason I don't want to sin isn't that it makes me a better Christian, but because I love him back and I don't want to nail him to the cross over and over again. It isn't just that I want to behave like a good little Christian, but I serve a magnificent God who deserves my obedience and is worth obeying. David Garland said, to forgive the sin is to remove the consequence, and we, res we respond to the fact that the consequences of our sins are removed through obedience. How many of us, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, because that would go badly, how many of us have sinned horribly? You would say like me, there's no way a good God should have forgiven me of that. Even much of what makes up the Giampa family is a function of Christ's authority to produce beauty from ashes. And remember, ashes, ashes points to mourning, and particularly in this context, mourning over sin, as we read Isaiah 61 Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken 
hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And that work that, that Luke uses for forgive can also be translated to release. We, when we were enslaved to sin, Christ has set us free. Psalm 30, 10 through 12 says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. We don't know what sins this man was guilty of. We're not told that. Did he have sins before he became paralyzed that were maybe horrible? Maybe it was just what's in his heart? We're not told. And we're not told because Luke's implication here is that Christ has the authority to forgive any sin, no matter what that sin is. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is. Maybe you cheated on your taxes. Maybe you, maybe you lied to your spouse. Maybe you were unfaithful to your spouse. Even if you're guilty of rape and murder, there may be right and good consequences on this earth for the, your actions, but no sin is beyond the authority of Jesus to forgive. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Now the first thing to note is the, the concern of the scribes and Pharisees is valid. It is a valid question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is this? The Pharisees were deeply committed to doctrine and to, to the Jewish scriptures. So, either Jesus doesn't have a good grasp on doctrine and is speaking out of turn, exercising authority that isn't his, or he's claiming to be God. That's a serious Serious thing, because the consequences for blasphemy are no joke. Anybody know what the consequences for blasphemy in the Jewish law is? Yeah, Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And the congregation shall stone him. Which, by the way, that does not sound like the most fun way to go says the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. That word perceive can be translated witness or recognize. So whether it's obvious that he heard the mumble or, or, or it was a supernatural perception, whatever it was, he knew what they were thinking and he responds. He asks why they question these things in their hearts. And what that seems to indicate is that their question at this point in the game and in this place were probably sincere. I think we need to notice that most of the 
early converts to Christianity were actually probably Pharisees. The other reason I think that is that here Jesus gives honest answers to questions, but he, he doesn't entertain questions that come from dishonest motives. So if you go to Mark, we'll go back to Mark chapter 8. This is what it says, Mark chapter 8, verse 11. Mark 8, 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So he's not going to answer dishonest questions. Which he, he continues in Luke 5, 23, Back in Luke 5, 23 and 24, he says, Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, I like that Luke highlights the theme of his gospel here. But, but that you may know, he says. Do you, do you remember... In the beginning of the book, Luke gives his purpose for writing the Gospel of Luke in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. It says that you, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's the purpose. Now, it's interesting because there are traditions out there that connect forgiveness to baptism. We reject that. For one, because only Christ has the authority to forgive. We get baptized in obedience as an outcome of the fact that we're forgiven. That's just to point out that obedience follows forgiveness. Jesus is demonstrating his authority to forgive sins by giving a visible sign of that in a command. Get up and go home. Get up and go home. It's as if to say, my work's complete, you're forgiven. Just like the purpose of a car is not to sit idly in the shop, right? Uh, once it's repaired, it has a purpose. It has a purpose to get us somewhere, to get our stuff somewhere, right? It, its need for a mechanic is never going to go away, but a car is meant to be driven. Similarly, we are in one sense to be constantly at the feet of Jesus. We will never run out of our need for Jesus. But in another sense, we are to go therefore, right? We're to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and to fulfill His mission and obedience to Him. We're to respond. There's a response, right? Verse 25, Luke 5, 25, And immediately He rose up before them and picked up what He had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Immediately. De delayed obedience is disobedience. So you see the obvious question that I think we, we miss in the story. Let's get there. First off, this is so important. When we're forgiven, our hearts are turned toward Jesus. O obedience is the natural progression from that, right? But look at what happens next. The natural outcome of obedience is praise. I think we often miss a step. <coughs> we often jump from forgiveness to praise. 
But true praise includes obedience. And when we're healed by the forgiveness of Jesus and we respond in obedience that then results in worship, what happens around us? Our praise becomes contagious. Look at what happens here. Verse 26, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now the paralytic immediately submits to Jesus and rejoices in an outburst of praise. He runs out, and amazement fills them all. Now, who's all? Everyone in the room. And who's in the room? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. Wait a minute. I... I don't know how many times I've read this and I never caught that. The paralytic's friends were there. They may have even been Pharisees. We don't know. But they're on the roof. The Pharisees were all amazed and glorified God. That seems what we know about the Pharisees kind of weird. They were filled with awe, and they offered this praise. They said, we have seen extraordinary things today. They glorified God. Last week and this week, we saw that Jesus is current, concerned with both our physical and spiritual conditions. Do we have the heart of Jesus? Do we have the heart of Jesus? I, David Garland said this. He said, legalists are concerned with being contaminated by lepers but do not care about the lepers. And yet, last week, we saw Jesus touch a leper. John 1, or I'm sorry, 1 John 1. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We are soiled by our sin. We are soiled, every last one of us. We are by our very nature unclean. You may have heard of the Walnut Street Jail that was opened in 1773 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Well, the Quakers in the area, they had this kind of Pelagian idea that people were born as neutral moral agents and that bad influences around the criminals are what led them to do bad things. It didn't come from their heart, it came from their influences. So in this jail, they built a section that was kind of an experiment, uh, and the section used solitary confinement as a, as a means of rehabilitation. There was one small window up high so that only the light that God gave could come in, and they would have human contact maybe once daily when they were given food by a guard. The, the idea was that without the bad influences, they would have a chance for true repentance and reflection and that their inner goodness would take over and they would be re rehabilitated. And the experiment was quite short-lived 
because all of these inmates went totally insane. Why? Because the Quakers got it wrong. They got it wrong. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, their evil hearts take over. That verse describes me. Describes all of us. Their evil hearts took over and drove them mad. See, it turns out that our worst influencer is ourselves. We need community because we need good influences. That's what makes fellowship and gathering so important. That's why membership is such an important piece of what we do at IBC. But the only source of true good is our Lord Jesus who forgives us and transforms us. And so this morning and throughout the week, would, would you agree to pray with me out of the Psalms? Just throughout the week, Psalm 51, 10 through 12. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We have a desperate need for Jesus. Our friends have a desperate need for Jesus. And Jesus has the authority to provide for our every physical and spiritual need. And if he can forgive sin, there's no limit to his authority. If he can forgive sin, there's no limit to the authority of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you that you have chosen to heal those of us here whom you have cleansed of our sin that has so completely soiled us. God, we confess that we have not loved you with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not lived in astonishment and obedience to your son, Jesus. God, we demonstrate so often that we have not been convinced of who you are by how we live. Help us to be fully convinced to serve you faithfully, to act upon what we believe and let, give us the faith to trust you in all things. God, make us holy. Give us the humility to understand who you are, to recognize the depths of who we are and to fall at your feet in humble repentance. God, let us receive your perfect will with gladness. Give us the strength to obey you out of sheer faithfulness because we believe you. We offer ourselves over to you this morning as living sacrifices of praise. 
and we enter our week as we walk out these doors and we look up at that sign that says you are now entering your mission field. God, give us the strength and the faith to fulfill that mission you've given us. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.